you want to work with containers on AWS. But what if you're really new to this? So let's start from the basics. If you want to learn this the easiest way, this is your blueprint. So if you're ready, let's begin. So let's start from where it all began. You have your computer that you're using. It might be your own PC or laptop. The components that actually make up for the engine for your computation are basically your CPU, RAM, storage, motherboard, graphics card, Ethernet, and other devices that you have in your system. To use this hardware, we need an interface. That is the operating system. Older computers were based on the command line based operating systems. I hope you remember the docs or the Unix based operating systems. Old school, isn't it? But then we went for the GUI based operating systems like Windows XP, Windows 8, Windows 10, Linux based operating systems like Red Hat, Ubuntu and Mac OS as well. And these operating system allowed us to install applications that helped us execute instructions on our system, which were basically installed on the operating system itself. So by now we had an actual understanding that in order to make use of the power of the computational resource that we have, we need a certain feature on top of that on which we can work. But there is something else we realized that is we can run multiple operating systems as well like Linux and Windows or even Mac OS on the same machine that we are currently working on. So the same hardware can be used as a placeholder for users to run multiple operating systems on the same machine. But what if we had 10 to 15 users who want to execute their instruction set on the same hardware that we are currently using by sharing the resources of course. Yes, you guessed it right. I am talking about virtualization or virtual machines. And if you think this technology is something that was invented recently, I would advise you to hold on to that thought for a little longer. And to know more about this, we actually need to go back in time and precisely to 1972. With the growing demand for the mainframe computers to be accessed by multiple users to increase productivity, it was in 1972 when IBM launched its VM370, which was also known as Virtual Machine Facility 370. It was the first hardware-assisted virtualization to be introduced on the IBM System 370, which was a very popular IBM mainframe computer back in 1972. That was supposed to be used with VM370. The hardware assisted virtualization, if you don't know, is the capability to use a physical component to create and manage virtual machines. So in turn, what we are saying is with the hardware that you have, you provide a capability so that you can create virtual machines. And there is one more request that I have from you is to keep an eye on the timeline that we have here. And for the virtualization to work with VM370, we needed something called as CP or what we also call as control program. And you will be surprised to know that CP40 or control program or VM-CP that we call was launched way back in 1960 by IBM which was the first research-based operating system that implemented complete virtualization and which later on gave birth to the legendary CP67. But you might be thinking but Sam virtual machines can run because of the hypervisor and you might be just wrong here. Where is the hypervisor? And I want to tell you that the CP or the control program that you see here is what we in today's time call as the hypervisor. And this is what the virtualization looked like. You have the system 370 that is the mainframe as the hardware. You have the control program 
which was able to create an environment for the resources to be shared. That's the job of the hypervisor. And the virtual machine ran on top of the time sharing operating system that we had like CMS or what we also called as conversational monitor system. So your hardware was system 370 that was your mainframe, your hypervisor was CP and the time sharing operating system was which later on was succeeded by VPCSS in 1968. Then in 1972, we had the full hardware virtualization using VM370. So these are virtual machine operating systems. And later on in 2000, IBM also released the Z series architecture for the Z VMs. And those actually might be also used till now. So, so that was a really big deal back then. And you might be thinking, why am I telling you all this? So don't worry about this. You will get to know the answers. So keep watching. Now, if you Google search for virtual machines or virtualization, you will see something like this. And there is nothing wrong with this. This as well encapsulates the basic idea of how virtualization works. So you have the hardware, there is your resource powerhouse on which a hypervisor sits on. And the hypervisor abstracts the hardware on top of which you host your guest operating system and then install your applications. In a way, you can say the hypervisor actually creates a virtual environment Virtual here means you're not using the physical hardware directly, but the abstract of that and on which you host the application. But the elephant in the room still remains to the point that what exactly is a hypervisor. So let's check that out. If you check online right now, you will see a lot of companies having a virtualization platform that is the hypervisor like VMware, Microsoft Hyper-V. Every child in the room right now knows about Hyper-V, I think, or maybe has heard of in his life. And we also have Oracle, IBM, of course, and we have Citrix and Red Hat as well. But let's jump back to visualizing how actually the people who created this came up with this wonderful concept. So imagine you have a plot of land, which you're planning to farm on. So it's a 30 by 30 plot, lush green and ready to be farmed. But as this is a large scale farming, there will be a set of prerequisites, isn't it? So you actually need the land to cultivate. You need the fertilizers, you need water, you need electricity, you need the right equipment and the farming vehicles as well. And you are ready to farm. But what if we need to farm different crops on the same land? Yes, we can hire more people. That's a start. But the first thing that you have to keep in mind is that you are limited on resources. So here you can see the available resources that we have. We hire three people to work with us, assign them a crop to farm on. To have the segregation in place, we bifurcated the land in such a way that we can farm on a segment of the land that we own. And we can assign the same to one of the farmers we hired. And we allocated a segment of the resource to each of the three farmers based on the land they occupy. And we actually got the best output from that. And if we wanted to plant another crop, we can assign a piece of land to the new farmer that we hire from the resource pool that we currently have. And there is one point that you should always remember that it should only be within the capacity limits of the available resources, not more than that. So I'm sure you're getting the point here and keep this example in your mind, but change the farmland to your own system and the farmers to be the operating system and you being the hypervisor. And this is actually close to what actually happens in virtualization. And that is the point where I tell you that a hypervisor is a software firmware or even a hardware that helps you run virtual machines on your system that you currently have. So if you see the design here, we have the base hardware, the hypervisor that sits on top of that, like a VMware or Windows Hyper-V, and you create your virtual machines on top of that. 
and you're good to go. Then you can install your applications and make use of them like you would on a regular desktop or laptop. But the main thing that you have to understand is that think from the perspective of the operating system. As an operating system, you are not worried about if you're running on an actual hardware or if you are not the only operating system that is installed on that machine. You just want the resources and you're fine with that. Similarly, the other operating system we have here runs in isolation, not getting affected with the Ubuntu operating system that is running on the same machine. And this kind of hypervisor that is rooted onto the BIOS and sits in between the VMs and the hardware is what we call as a bare metal hypervisor or also known as the type 1 hypervisor. And this is the kind of setups you will see in your organizations as well. A bare metal hypervisor runs directly on the host machine hardware to manage the guest operating systems. Yes, the OS that is installed on the machine as a part of the VM is basically called a guest operating system. And now you have to tell me what kind of hypervisor CP was. Yes, it was a bare metal hypervisor and that is why VM370 was a hardware assisted virtual machine operating system. So I hope you got the point here. But wait, I am still not convinced yet. I didn't understand a few things here. So if a hypervisor sits in between VM and the hardware, what does it actually do? How does it assign CPU or memory? And for that, I think we need to dig a bit deeper. I hope you're not bored yet. It's really going to be interesting moving on. Just hold on to that. So back in the day, we had a pool of people who wanted to work on the same mainframe computer or system which were very scarce and way more expensive than you may actually think and giving every user their own system was not feasible. So what these mainframes did is they provided their users with a capability called time sharing. What this meant was the machine will service its users by providing them a slice of its time to perform or execute the instructions they wanted to carry out. As and when the time slice was completed, it would move on to the next user to take up the pending task or move on to the next task and give that user its share of time. Still not getting the example here? Let's simplify it further. So you have a task scheduler which would hold the task list that are supposed to be executed from all the users. The scheduler would then pass the instruction to the central processing unit for execution. If it's completed within the time slice, it's awesome, you're done. And if it did not complete the scheduled task within the time slice that was allotted, the task moves back to the preempted program list. And here you can see we have the time slice of around two hours. And I know you might feel what will happen if my task execution is not completed. Here, the word that you see preempted is your answer. So preemption or preempted is the act of temporarily interrupting an executing task with the intention of resuming it on a later point of time. So based on the scheduling policy that we have here, I think we have the round robin. So your task will be executed in that particular time. So still having doubts, is it? Okay, let's simplify this even further. So each user that you see here was provided with a virtual machine. Yes, they were provided with a virtual machine. So in a way, each of these users felt that, or if you have to use an appropriate word for this, it would be perceived. So they perceived that they were actually using the real machine or real mainframe all by themselves. The mainframe that we have provided as a hypervisor, which is also called as the VMM or the virtual machine manager, which would actually help us manage and coordinate these virtual machines and thus the name VMM 
it's a kind of a notion here so but the best part about this was that the hypervisor was such a boon to the system designers because it took the overhead from them in allocating resources and managing multiple vms running on the same mainframe and that would do the job for them so what does the hypervisor actually do so the hypervisor takes care of allocating resources such as cpu time memory storage to the virtual machines giving them their share of computing resources and on the other hand the virtual machine is a compute resource that uses software instead of the physical hardware or the components or the computer itself to run its program and deploy applications but the time sharing is not used that much because we moved on to the real time multiprocessing systems or the rtos and then to the gpus that is the general purpose operating systems like windows and others and that is what exactly gave birth to the other type of hypervisor that we use in today's time and this is where we have actually reached so here you have the hardware that is your resource powerhouse on top of that you install the host operating system like windows or linux and on top of that you install a special type of hypervisor on the operating system alongside with your existing applications which would help you run your virtual machines and this is the type 2 hypervisor and also called as a hosted hypervisor the name is basically no brainer because it's hosted on the operating system itself so a hosted hypervisor runs on the conventional operating system just as other computer programs would run and in a way you can run multiple operating systems on your machine with the help of the hypervisor which is called the guest operating system that runs as a process on the host so the operating system that you install as part of the vm on the type 2 hypervisors is called the guest operating system for this type of hypervisor and that actually runs as a process on the host and if you see here we have the hardware configuration of 16 gb 8 core cpu 10 gb of hard disk the hypervisor has the capability to take a portion of this resource and allocate it to the vm for it to operate and function so with the help of a hypervisor what we did was we created a vm with 4 gb ram two vcpus or virtual cpu and for storage we allocated 10 gb of hard drive and we created one more with the same configuration but one thing that you need to understand is that you cannot use the already allocated resource so you must ensure it does not impact the overall performance of your system because if you have 16 gb and you assign most of them to the vm you will risk having a very slow performance for your own system itself because you will not have enough memory to run other applications and for that vm apps actually come with a restriction on how much resource you are allowed to allocate so that actually is one less thing to worry about and coming back to the topic again the biggest difference here is that unlike the type 1 hypervisor that abstracts the actual underlying hardware the type 2 hypervisor actually abstracts the guest operating systems from the host operating systems giving it the illusion that the vm is directly talking to the hardware but instead it actually in reality gets its resources from the hypervisor itself because if you're running a windows operating system as your host operating system and you have a linux guest operating system or the vm operating system how does it matter to the vm that you're running a windows machine it's not like it'll unfriend you it actually doesn't know what you actually have because the type 2 hypervisor actually tells the guest operating system that this is your 2v cpu or the virtual cpu 8 gb of ram 20 gb of hard drive go and work as if you are the actual operating system on that particular hardware and this type of hypervisor is what we have used a lot i'm sure you guys have used oracle virtualbox or the vmware workstation 
and please let me know what's your favorite VM host in the comment sections so we can have a debate there. But wait a minute, I just told you that we allocate virtual CPUs and not actual CPU, isn't it? How does the CPU that you have gets allocated then? To understand this, let's journey back to the present time. So you will be aware that the heart of the computer is the CPU. That is the processor that we use. And the processor come in a lot of variations. So you might have heard about single core, dual core, quad core CPUs and the next gen actually is really insane. And the ones that we are using on the data center servers are actually mind blowing. But what does it actually help with virtualization and how can we assign virtual CPUs is the question here. So this is the Intel Xeon Pentium 9282 processor which is a Xeon 9200 series processor which has a whopping 56 cores and 112 threads. So you must be thinking what's so special about this. But I want to tell you that back in the day when we used to have Pentium i3 processors like i3-8130U, it had only two cores and four threads. That's all. And the PC that I'm recording right now is the Ryzen 5900X which is 12 cores, 24 thread CPU, which right now might cost you around 60,000. Can you imagine what the cost of the data center CPUs would be? And don't worry, we will get to that. So keep watching. So all these processors that you see have cores and threads, isn't it? What it means is that each core that you have on a CPU is the physical computational unit present on the CPU that you own. Like this. So this is a Core i7 CPU with four cores. As you can see here, the four cores present on the chipset die. We actually won't go in depth on this, but let me know if you need to learn more on this. We can actually make a whole video on how processor is actually designed. So do let me know on the comment section below. So a core actually works on a particular task and the other core will work on the other task and so on. And logically, the more cores that you have, the better performance you get. Not exactly, but there are other things involved which we won't discuss right now. But just keep in mind that the more cores that you have, the better performance you will get. And the threads that you have here are responsible for you to have a higher throughput and speed at which you can accomplish the task. So if you have to draw an analogy here, so 8 people working with 10 hands each is better than 2 people working with 4 hands. I know that's a very bad analogy, but I hope you get the point. So let's just remove this. Now that you have an idea of what a CPU core and thread is and why is it important, let's talk about virtual CPU. So imagine the CPU that you have. What if I tell you each core that you have can act as a vCPU and more because you can have multiple vCPUs by assigning time slots within a CPU core to create a virtual CPU on its own. Yes, that's how it works. Virtual CPU is not the actual physical CPU core. But the time slot within the physical CPU across all the CPU cores that you have or your processor has. So with one CPU core, you can have multiple vCPUs created because vCPU or virtual processors does not represent one to one allocation between the physical core and the actual vCPU that you have. But instead, it represents the time on the physical CPU resource pool. And that is why you might have seen even if we have a processor with two cores, you can still run two or three virtual machines on the same hardware. So let's assign these vCPUs to our virtual machines. If you see, we are assigning three to four time slots, also called as vCPUs, and we are able to create the virtual machine here. 
and this is done by the hypervisor. But how do you know how many vCPUs that you have? So let's see the calculations for vCPU count for the 9282 processor that we have here right now. So this is a simple formula that is based on my reading on the IBM documentations. So you multiply the number of threads and the number of cores and to that you multiply the number of physical CPUs that you have. So in our case we have 56 cores multiplied to 112 threads and as we have one physical CPU the unit will remain as one. So we get a total of 6272 vCPUs. This amount of computational power is beyond what you will use. So this CPU is obviously not for personal use unless you are running a mad in-house server. At this point of time, the price of this ranges from it comes somewhere around 18 lakhs to 36 lakh rupees. Might as well get two cars from this. <laughs> but moving on. So now we have learned about two types of hypervisors. So the first type being the bare metal hypervisor where the hypervisor are present on the hardware and lets you install multiple VMs on the machine. That is why it is called a bare metal hypervisor. And the other thing that we have or the other type that we have is the type 2 that is hosted hypervisor. So a hosted hypervisor runs on a conventional operating system or OS just as any other computer program does. So the type 1 hypervisor also called as the bare metal hypervisor comes as a part of the physical hardware and sometimes has to be enabled from the BIOS if not enabled by default. And that is also called as the host. And the VM that is hosted on that is called the guest operating system. And the hypervisor actually treats the resources that you have such as CPU, memory, storage as a part of the resource pool and thus are able to allocate these resources for the VMs that are created on top of them. So the common type of type 1 hypervisor are the ESXi hypervisors from VMware or also called as ESX integrated or the Hyper-V that we have which is also a type 1 hypervisor and this type of hypervisor can help you with the hardware assisted virtualization. Now let's come back to the type 2 hypervisor also called as the hosted hypervisor that, that runs on the conventional general operating system just like a software application. So you have the hardware on top of which you install the operating system that is your host operating system and you install the hypervisor as an application on your host operating system and which will help you run multiple operating systems as a part of your VM creation list. These hypervisors can be installed on the data center or the local computer that you have. Oh wait, this is same for the type 1 hypervisor as well but that also can be installed on the local computer if you have an embedded hypervisor that comes along with your system. So don't worry about that, just like the dual boot that you used to do. But the difference is that you install type 2 on the OS itself. Here what the hypervisor does is it actually abstracts the guest operating system from the host operating system and that is how you are able to allocate resources to your VM without having the host operating system object you from what you are doing. The best examples are VMware Workstation and Oracle VirtualBox because I have used them so it should be good. Just kidding. Uh, with that you will be able to create your own VM and you will be able to run Ubuntu or any other Linux or even Windows on the same operating system at once. But even though I have shown you a great deal of why virtual machines are awesome, they do come with their own shortcomings. Let's see that. So the virtual machines that we have here provide an isolated environment for your applications to run and even though your VM is compromised, it won't have much impact on the other VMs. But what if the hypervisor is itself hacked? Then it will have an impact on all the VMs that you have provisioned. That would be bad, isn't it? 
So you need to understand here that the virtualization comes at a cost and the cost is that the hypervisor virtualizes the physical hardware itself. And each VM that you see here runs a full-fledged operating system and utilizes more resource which could be very frustrating if you are tight on budget and resource scaling. Even though you allocate more CPU, RAM or storage to your VMs, there will be a time when you will feel the heat of the slowish VMs. For example, running multiple applications like microservices. Can it be done using VMs? Yes, it can. Will it cost? Yes, it will. And that's where we start off with the containers. What does Google say about containers? Containers offer a logical packing mechanism in which applications can be abstracted from the environment in which they actually run. I know this doesn't make much sense here. We will break it down. But before that, I want to tell you that containers are based on process isolation and because of which we can run multiple applications on a single host. Obviously, by taking the help of the isolation provided through namespaces and resource control. Don't worry, we will talk more about this in a bit. But this concept of process isolation that I said just now is also not new. This also started with the Unix v7 when chroot system call was introduced back in 1972. My father was in high school back then. And it was in 2013 that Docker was launched after a few hiccups and containers boomed and exploded and everyone went crazy. So when it comes to a container, we have the hardware, the host operating system that sits on the top of the hardware like Windows or Linux. And then we have the container engine on top of which you can run multiple applications in isolation. That's it. <laughs> That's where actually Docker comes in. And don't worry, this is not the only thing we will discuss. So chill, we will dig deep into this as well. This is just the introduction. Now let's bring up the virtual machine environment. Look at these two images carefully and try and find the things that make you feel it's different or make you feel the containers are different. I know what you might be thinking, but more or less. The first thing that you might feel that we only have the applications. What about the operating systems? The second one that you might feel is instead of the hypervisors, we have the container engine here. Thirdly, no hypervisor in the containers. How is the resource allocation working then? Fourth one, where is the virtual machine? How will we install the guest operating system? And most importantly, you might ask yourself, so does it mean that Docker is the hypervisor? You might be thinking, okay, okay, the containers might be the hypervisor. And the answer is no and no. When you see this image, it gives you the impression that the container engine is the perfect replacement for the hypervisor. And that is why it creates confusion. So let's change things here and let's see what it actually looks like. Let's remove the container engine and the application containers. And let's switch things around. So don't get confused here. It is simple. You need to keep in mind that the application that you have here are not running on top of the container engine. You need to understand the binary files and the library files actually make use of the same kernel to execute the instruction. And the same reason why I just said the engine provides you the so-called namespace, but the actual execution happens in the underlying OS and its kernel. And the daemon or the Docker daemon that you have here is just to provide the application that you have the proper process isolation it needs from other applications, of course. 
So you might ask me if this is interpreting the instructions using the same kernel from the underlying OS. Yeah, if we are using Linux as a host, then it is fine. But how is it possible that Linux containers are able to run on Windows operating system? That's a very valid question. And I know you will be asking this question. And that's what I asked myself as well. And hence I reached a point where I realized there is a lot more to Docker on Windows than you actually think. Wait for that for a bit longer. Let's understand some things which are very important before that. That is abstraction. So what is abstraction? When you go to the ATM to get the cash, you enter your PIN and you enter the amount that you need and you draw the cash. That's it. You're not bothered about how that ATM machine works and you don't need to know that as well, isn't it? Other than how to use the ATM itself. That's called abstraction. Hiding the unwanted details and just showing you the required information that you need. When it comes to the hypervisors, you actually abstract the actual physical hardware from the virtual machines that you have, as we discussed right now. And when it comes to the containers, what do we abstract here? Oh yes, you abstract the operating system itself. And this point is something that you need to understand very, very carefully. You are abstracting the operating system itself. And you may agree to disagree with me here on this point, but we will discuss on why this is the case. But having said that, I have still not answered your question. If the application uses the underlying OS kernel, how is it that we are able to run Linux-based operating systems on Windows? More like Linux distributions to be precise, like Alpine, Photon OS, Ubuntu. And for that, you need to watch the next session because this is the end of part one for the Blueprint series. This series is going to cover every topic in detail. So make sure you don't miss out on any of these sessions. So please hit the subscribe button right now. And these videos actually take a lot of time to make. So please make sure that you hit the like button and give me your feedback in the comment section below. I'll be ready to take any queries that you have. And if you wish to buy me a coffee, you can check out the link in the description below. And I'll be doing a live Q&A session as well next week. So if you have any questions, let me know that as well. So that's all for today. Don't miss out on the next session because we'll be learning something very, very interesting. So until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. It's Pythonic signing off.